Every company has a breaking point, a moment when an organization realizes it is overwhelmed by an avalanche of inbound calls and emails that bombard personnel with the same rudimentary questions over and over again. It is a vexing problem that resembles a scene from Groundhog Day, where team members feel as if they are constantly reliving the same day. But what if there was an easy, data-powered solution to this problem? David Karandish is the CEO of Capacity, a company on a mission to solve those pain points through the power of AI. On this episode of IT Visionaries, David details how the Capacity platform is eliminating common issues by using conversational intelligence, and he explains why not all chatbots are serviceable. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of IT Visionaries. And today we have special guest, David, what's going on? Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you on the show. Um, so we're going to talk about all the uh, cool stuff that you have going on at Capacity right now and uh, truly at Capacity. And we're going to talk some AI and, uh, of course, your background. So let's get into it. How did you get started in technology? I started coding in high school. Um, at that point, you could build a website. You were somewhere between a wizard and a warlock in terms of your magical powers. Uh, so this is the, early, the, the late 90s. And I can parlay that from there. I ended up getting a computer science degree at Washington University in St. Louis, a bunch of different web-based businesses, anything from e-commerce to lead generation to content publishing. And then uh, I exited my last business a few years ago and then started Capacity in 2017. Yeah. So flash forward to today. Tell us a little bit about Capacity. So our mission at Capacity is to help teams do their best work. And the way that we do that is by automating the support function of your org. We want to go to that, those parts of your org where you get lots of emails, phone calls, taps on the shoulder, tickets, and use our technology to answer 84% of those questions instantly. We've been around for about three years. We're working with companies big and small, both internal and customer-facing use cases. And what's been so exciting about the platform is that every day, the AI just gets smarter and smarter and continues to take on more and more of your workflows. Yeah, it seems like with obviously things like RPA and, and all sorts of automations coming to light, it seems like so much of the, the mundane everyday tasks that, uh, that we have hopefully will be, will be a, a bot doing those things and we can focus on uh, the harder kind of human-centric work. What do you what do you feel like is is the thing that's so exciting about what capacity can do for for teams? I think at a very high level, the way we have built the business, we've built it as a full stack solution. So we can help you answer questions, we can help you automate your your workflows, provide you with tickets for anything that does require a human component. And so I love the fact that you can plug capacity into just about any part of the org, your HR uh, service center, your IT, your customer help desk, even your own personal productivity. And so 
the most exciting thing about the platform is its flexibility and its ability to continue to grow within the organization as you roll it out to more places. And so let's get kind of hyper-specific on one of those use cases. Can you walk me through like exactly what, what's kind of the before and after of, of what would be happening at a company like that? I'll, I'll use, a, uh, use a recent example. So West Community Credit Union was in growth mode. They were expanding, growing. They ended up roughly doubling their assets under management in an 18-month timeframe. And at the same time, we were able to help them reduce their calls going into their call center by 25%. So by placing the capacity bot on their website, we could now answer questions like, how do I refinance my home? I'm looking for an ATM. To what's the routing number for the credit union? Um, So they grew by 2x. We cut their calls going to the call center by 25%. And most importantly, their net promoter scores have gone up by 10 points by rolling out this technology. Now, we haven't even done the internal deployment yet at West Community. The bot's been so valuable being on their website that internal team members use it to answer questions because they can find information faster there than on their existing intranet. Um, so these are just, just a couple of quick examples on how we take an organization that's trying to help, in, in their case, they serve their members and do so in a way that scales even as they grow. And so let's talk a little bit about AI and and kind of like the nature of the bot. Is this something that is like 100% bot and then it transitions to like their service team or to like to a human being? Does it route them in the right direction? Like what what's the what's the level of uh of AI here in terms of solving the problems? Yeah, so if you sent the bot 100 questions it would come back and instantly answer 84 of them. And then for the remaining 16 of them, we could either have someone jump in via live chat, or if no one's available, uh, one of your team members can follow up via ticket. But when they respond to that ticket or live chat, and actually save that response in the knowledge base for next time. So that support person within your org never has to answer the same question twice. Once they've answered it once, it gets saved into the knowledge base. And then capacity learns that going forward. So it's, it's just constantly learning the ins and outs of the org with every question you throw at it. And is there like possibilities there that somebody answers like a question wrong and then it learns incorrectly? Like how does that work? So one of the most important parts of a system like ours is the feedback loop. With every single response, we've got a thumbs up, thumbs down mechanism. Thumb it up, it teaches the machine learning to match that response a little more often thumb it down, we will instantly send that over to what we would call a, a co-pilot or a support agent within your org who can jump in and respond to that question. Um, part of our training and how we ensure that you get high quality answers is that we get representative samples within your team to ask lots of questions to the bot. And we have the ability to not only respond with, a, with an answer, but also contextualize where that answer came from. So somebody asks a policy question on an internal use case, and you could pull from the 2010 guidelines or the 2020 guidelines by citing the source citation of where the response comes from, you can have confidence that you know that the answer is matching your expectations. If you saw that it came out of the 2020 guide instead of out of the the 2010 guide. And so when it's 
when it's kind of responding to those folks and it's pull, it's pulling that information learning as it goes and and it's connecting into you know people's systems can you then get proactive with the way that you are responding to questions uh, with the way you when people are, are are searching your site or looking for different things and it's like you know hey 70% of people who come to the site ask this question sort of a thing exactly so we can give you all the analytics around here are the questions that people ask um, here are the contexts from which they ask them. They don't have to just be simple question in, answer out. We can also provide you with guided conversations that can take you through a bit of a decision tree, depending on the type of question you have. Uh, some questions might pull out of your FAQ knowledge base. Some of them might pull directly out of a document. Other questions can be retrieved directly out of an application. And not only questions in and answers out, but also having the bot take actions on your behalf as well, like scheduling a meeting or updating a record in Salesforce. Over time with our workflows, we took that concept and we said, well, the guided conversation can be used to take you down multiple paths in a single session. Well, if you want to take our process and represent that online, you want to be able to do that where you've got multiple people coordinating, multiple systems strung together we can put that into a workflow. And now you could take something like your onboarding process and have capacity coordinate between scheduling a meeting, sending you your paperwork, taking you through your training, uh, helping somebody get up to speed in an automated manner. How widespread do you think like bots and tools like capacity are in the enterprise right now? Like in the, in the, if you were to say like, you know, Fortune 500 or Global 2000, like how many do you think are, are using stuff like this? I think in the Fortune 500, they have 70% plus of those organizations trying this technology in some sort of form. I think the ubiquity of the technology is going to cross the chasm when companies start adopting uh, not just point solutions, but true platforms for powering their, their ecosystem. It's very easy to build a chatbot. Someone can do that over the weekend, but to build a true support automation platform that can understand your questions before you ask them, that can intelligently route them to the right places, and that understand that the nexus between where humans and bots connect is where a lot of the, the handoff problems are. So like, for example, I was on, um, I ordered an iPad keyboard a couple of weeks ago. I had four kids at home and all. Oh, uh, used to be a pretty, we used to be a very low screen time family. And then after COVID hit, you know, it looks like a small Apple store in my house. And so anyway, I'm ordering this new iPad keyboard and it didn't show up. So I went to the UPS website. I had a question, two questions. First question, they answered instantly uh, directly from a bot. I was like, wow, this is a great experience. Second question it couldn't answer my question. It didn't know that it didn't answer my question. And there was no escalation path to escalate me up to a human. And so I think the number of Fortune 500 or Global 2000 companies that are trying this technology out is, is very high. But so many people are trying out platforms that are kind of easy to get up and going, but, but don't actually scale when you get into real world use cases. And so I think that's where you're going to see a big big adoption jump that happens over the next couple of years as people start to recognize the difference between a, frankly, a point solution chatbot versus a true AI platform. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I I think that that's probably where a lot of people's frustrations are with bots in general is, you know, you're you're getting asked certain questions. I equated to the uh, you know, once you had aud- the automated phone calls where it's like it would leave lead you through a list of questions that you're answering and typing in all this information, all this stuff, and then you get to the human being and then they ask you everything again. And you're like, "Wait a second. Yeah, Why did you're like spend- the worst experience you've ever had." Yeah, it's it's now way worse, or at least like you know maybe explain to us why you need it all again. But yeah, it kind of feels like that's where we are with bots, right? Where it's like a lot of times it's like it'll collect information or ask things, or but it won't remember who you are, or it won't it won't feed that information correctly to the person that you end up getting on the phone or that you're chatting with or whatever it is. And I think at the end of the day, I mean, it depends on what you're doing, but you know, if you're selling something, if you're selling an enterprise solution, like. At the end of the day, both sides, generally speaking, want to actually talk to another human being. So that's like the logical progression, unless they're just getting information or something like that. But for internal things, it's about like removing friction, like automating workflows and something totally different. It, it's it's so funny that it's like this one technology kind of gets can get thrown at a bunch of problems because there's so much like workflow debt that everybody has in in their systems like one way or whether it's customer facing or internal facing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the the reason that there's so much excitement around this technology is that we're finally at the point where your files are in the cloud, your applications are in the cloud, your knowledge is stored in the cloud, whether you're using a capacity like chat on your website or internet, or whether you're plugging into existing messaging platforms like Microsoft Teams or Slack. So all the pieces are there to create a, an intelligent cloud-based operating system to run your business. And I mean, operating system in a, in a business sense, not in a necessarily in a technical sense. But you need to have all the rec- all the requisite parts there. You need a developer platform because you'll have apps that you don't have connectors to. You need a cloud drive because you'll have, need a place to store your documents. You'll need workflows because you'll need to coordinate between multiple pieces and multiple people. And so if you only have parts of that solution, stringing this together becomes very difficult. But if you can deliver it, like I said, I, we're building a full stack company from an, a business operating stack. If you can deliver that in one place, then you don't have to jump through all those hoops. It's a very integrated and well thought out approach to the marketplace. So I want to go to the uh, internal team use case. Uh, our audience of CIOs, IT leaders, technology leaders, a lot of them are focusing on internal uses, how to improve employee experience, how to you know automate journeys for their employees. It seems like as much you know there's such a clear use case obviously for for external with like you know chat and support and 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 those sort of things. but it seems like to me that there's just so much value that can be unlocked internally. What are some of the things that you're seeing as you're talking to your customers and prospects about like some of the bottlenecks that they face? I think one of the biggest opportunities is to re-examine the intranet and to say, how do we make an internal knowledge base that's accessible for the org in the ways that the org wants to access that information? One of the problems with SharePoint is that the first day a SharePoint site goes out, everyone's really excited about it. And then a week later, some documents get stale. And then a month later, even worse. And then a year or two later, like I can't trust any of this information. It's all 
it's all no longer valid. And so one, one of the first things we did in our knowledge base was to add an expiration date and to encourage our clients to set an expiration date because we recognized early on that not all information is evergreen. And so we see a lot of our clients who are saying, we, we want to take this knowledge management use case and ensure that our team has access to the information they need to be successful. And they should be able to pull that up on their phone and on their laptop and on their iPad. They should be able to ask a question in natural language. It should be guided. So for questions that don't have a simple answer, be able to take you through a guided conversation. And it should be really easy to deploy one line of JavaScript you can place on an internal internal site. Another example we see uh, folks spending time on the onboarding process. Getting your team up to speed is so critical because the time where your talent is, you're paying for the talent to be there, but your talent is not able to do what, what they were hired to do. We see a lot of organizations saying, we want to start your employee journey with excellence, starting from the very onboarding experience you have. Yeah, that's a great one. It's definitely something that every single, I mean, I'd say, every, you know, we all need to improve everything, but every company needs to, impo- needs to improve their employee onboarding, you know, myself included. It's a, it's a great use case to, to get started. What are some other places that like, if you were sitting down with the CIO, they were saying like, yeah, we've been dabbling with bots and we've been, you know, looking at AI and we're kind of going through the motions here. What should we point it at first? They're like, David, there's one thing that like you see that people knock it out of the park is like this internal process always needs uh, always needs help and could you could just throw it right at this and it's going to start working and you're going to see results right away. In addition to onboarding and intranet replacement, what we found is that a lot of companies have challenges with approvals. So you think about all the approvals in the, especially in a, like a regulated environment, like a, a financial services firm, uh, how do I get XYZ approved? What are you know, internal policies and guidelines? Uh, nobody wants to spend time working through those documents. It's a really good use case to start. Another one is an internal help desk. You know, a lot of times you'll have very formal help desks like an IT, maybe they're using a service now or something like that. Um, but you end up with, informal help desks that form. So in a mortgage company, it might be your uh, underwriting, underwriting desk that's answering questions from loan officers. Uh, in a large Fortune 2000, Fortune, Fortune 500 company, you might have an HR service center that's trying to answer HR-related questions in, in bulk. Anywhere where you get lots of emails, tickets, phone calls, taps on the shoulder, internal, external, customer support, internal support, these are great places to say, let's take a pause and examine what bringing an AI in could do to transform the way that we work and really help teams do their best work. Yeah. Can you, can you talk through that a little deeper? I'm curious like what that would look like. Yeah. So a cu- couple different ways to go about it. When we would meet with a client, we would typically sit down and say, okay, let's, let's walk through what are your, uh, what are your workflows? So one example we're working with a, a large online educational institution and they have both a campus university experience and an online experience. And in their campus experience, if you drop a class, it takes eight weeks to process that workflow. And in the online experience, it takes eight weeks to process that workflow. And in either case, it's, it's neither one of them are a great experience, but in the online case, 
some of these online classes are only eight weeks in length. So the class might be over before you even know if you successfully dropped it or not. And so this is an example of a workflow that was causing a lot of stress to the student body that they recognized was painful. It involved a lot of integrations with a lot of different parts of the org, a lot of different pieces of software. We looked at it and said, this is a great place for us to come in, bring an AI, answer student questions up front, but then actually automate the workflow itself down the road. This parallels well with the way we go about rolling the product out. Our first use case of this particular university was answering student questions online. How do I register for class? How do I transfer credit? Can I take differential equations over the summer? Second phase is what I just talked about here, helping to identify these workflows that can be automated to create a better overall student experience. And then the third phase was to look at the data around their class schedule and say, okay, we know someone's incoming GPA. Did they check the box that they read the syllabus? Did they spend time on, on these particular sections of filling out their, their Canvas forms? You can actually say what the likelihood is for someone to complete that class and ultimately the likelihood for a student to graduate. So if you wanted to figure out what your most at-risk population is, they don't have to guess anymore. They can go in and say, oh, the AI is identified. Here are the 50 students out of 5,000 that are most at risk. Let's go spend time there. And you can see over time, these similar types of opportunities where you could say, who are our most at-risk team members? Who should, who should we be spending time to try to keep? Because we all know the cost of replacing a team member is very expensive, especially in a pandemic. Well, other thing we do is we'll have clients outline their workflows and they'll, they'll rank them from easy to hard. I'll rank them from biggest impact to lowest impact. And then it just becomes a pretty simple uh, rollout where you go for the easiest to implement, biggest impact stuff first, and then work your way down through the list. Any predictions or uh, crystal ball uh, theorizing here for AI as an industry going forward? I have a, a few predictions. Uh, one is that we will get past this us versus them mentality that a lot of organizations have. Is the human going to do it? Is the bot going to do it? And we're going to actually, the, the most effective people are, will be the people who know how to get things done through a bot, with a bot, with a bot uh, in that kind of co-pilot seat. Uh, second prediction is that the natural language processing will continue to get better and better. So understanding what you meant will become less of a problem. The, the bigger problem is going to be getting access to the data that you need to answer the question based on what you meant. And so I think you're going to see even more APIs get created, even more integrations happen to make this data available across the enterprise. You're going to have internal tools that get built where people say, look, it has to have an, an API that can be plugged into. Otherwise, we're, we're not going to sanction building any more internal systems unless they can talk to these AIs and make all this data accessible. And then finally, I think the shift, AIs answering questions, you know, taking on tasks, to ultimately AIs making decisions as artificial intelligence gets better and gets better implemented and better adopted, when that decision-making component becomes a much bigger portion of the value prop, you're going to see an exponential increase in usage because it's going to unlock 
lots of economic opportunity, both in terms of cost savings and revenue generation, all while creating a better customer experience. On Capacity, you have some really good work on ethics and AI. For our listeners, you can just go to capacity.com and check out ethics and AI. And you wrote seven guiding principles. Can you kind of share like why you all wrote this? Like why, I mean, I think we know why ethics is important, but why you feel like these, these guiding principles are the ones that, that matter? Yeah. When I, when I look at any time a new technology comes out, you have two camps. You have one camp, the libertarian or conservative camp that says, hey, we, we let the markets decide what to do with, with this technology. And then you may have the other, the other camp that comes back and says, oh, we need to regulate it. We need to understand it. We need to box it in. And on either extreme end of that can lead to trouble. We looked at the application of AI, and this isn't, a, this isn't an add-on technology that you're going to see show up here and there. This is it's like every product is being rewritten from the thermostat. You think about the thermostat as one of the least sexy products that people have come up with, but every product is being rewritten with this idea of AI powering it. So we felt like it would be important to take a stand and a stance on the fact that we want to reduce bias in how these algorithms get applied. I, I like to joke around that the algorithms, generally speaking, the algorithms are not biased. The training data is usually what's biased. So we want, we want people to recognize that the math, generally speaking, isn't biased. But if you feed in training sets that have major inequities to them, you will get major inequities in the, in the outcomes that come out of these. And so we talk about assessing your outcomes. We talk about looking for bias. We talk about making sure your data sets are representative of your populations. We talk about the feedback mechanisms being so important. And we talk about how providing as much transparency as you can is, is just so critical. And so when we think about bringing any technology to the market, we want to do it responsibly. We also know that speed is is such a critical factor. And so balancing those two, we, we just felt it was important to share what our, what our ethical backbone is around releasing this technology out to, to companies. You gave a great example on the importance of diversity of data sets with this, uh, the classic case of, of how the AI kept missing wolves versus domesticated dogs. Can you share that? Yeah. So classic case, um, there, there's a data set called ImageNet. And it's collections of lots of different pictures of people and animals and things. And there have been all these classic AI computer vision challenges of trying to look at the images and detect what is what. You know, they've had challenges to detect the difference between a lion and a tiger or the, the differences between, there's a good one you can Google, between uh, a chihuahua and a muffin which sounds ridiculous until you look at the picture and you're like, wow, some of those chihuahuas look tasty. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But yes, yeah, so, so they, this one example, they ended up trying to classify the difference between a, a wolf and a dog. And the algorithms kept failing. And they kept classifying these dogs as, as wolves and they couldn't figure out what happened. But when they double-clicked on it and started investigating what was going on, all of the wolves in the training set had snow in the background. 
And so anytime they had a dog that showed up outside, maybe in Colorado or something like that, the algorithm was looking at the whole image and it saw the snow in the background and said, oh, based on what we've seen, that must, that must be a wolf. And so it's not that the algorithms themselves are biased, but if you feed only Arctic wolf pictures and then you place a dog in an Arctic type setting or a snowy, snowy setting, the algorithm can't distinguish between the two. And so they went in and they, they gave it a more diversified data set. So the algorithms can start to distinguish that, that the background image of the snow is, is not very important in delineating between dog or wolf, uh, that more of the characteristics of the animal itself were more important features in that model. Yeah. And it just speaks to, you know, it says, you know, diversity 15 times on the, on the description here, but diversity of data, diversity of people working on the problem, diversity of, of trainers, you know, there's just so much obviously that goes into this, that it need needs to be built with bias in mind. And I think that, you know, it's an important thing to talk about and to, uh, and it's cool to see that you all kind of created this, these seven guiding principles. It takes about a minute to read, so people should check it out. But, but it's just super important to look for bias because otherwise, you know, like if it was something way less obvious than wolves and dogs that we can't, that, you know, a human could just look at and tell in one second what it is. Uh, if it's something much more complex, then uh, you need to make sure that you do the work on the front end. Absolutely. So this is not your first company. Uh, you built a company called Answers. Can you share a little bit about that company and, and kind of the journey? Yeah. So we, my, my business partner and I had just graduated from Washington University in St. Louis. And we started what was originally a comparison shopping website that we then expanded into a portfolio of like vertical search websites. And as we were going through that expansion, we were developing content for each one of those verticals. And we were trying to find a common denominator format of content that could be applied to an autos website, but also to a healthy living website. And we kind of fell in love with this Q&A model where you could place a question and answer module on a website. And as people asked and answered those questions, it would provide a lot of value to the consumer reading those FAQs. It was great kind of search engine fodder from an SEO perspective for search engines. And then advertisers would have a more informed consumer, which we believe would lead to you know, more purchases, more better consumer intent, that sort of thing down the line. Or at minimum, at least more engagement with the content around, around their advertisements. And so we had built a question and answer platform that we applied to our own vertical websites and then over time, we said, wow, uh, we really like this, this concept of doing Q&A. That led us to ultimately buy a company called Answers.com, which is a public company, been around for a long time. We merged it in with our vertical search platform and then ultimately combined the companies together into a diversified digital media platform itself. I mean... So when you're looking at like that volume of answers, I'm sure that this like all plays into, you know, your your love for AI, but when you're looking at all of these answers being asked uh, every single day on a platform like that with, you know, tens and tens of millions of people on there, I'd imagine that like 
you know, the AI part of, uh, of your brain is like, look at all this data that, that we could use for something. What was that, you know, do, were you thinking about AI back then? Was that something that was, you know, in the back of your mind, front of your mind? I, I wouldn't say it was in the front of my mind yet. What, what I would say though, is that one of the things we noticed is that there people either think in a scattered way or they think in a linear way. They don't often think in terms of power loss. And so if you looked at the average question on an answers.com, average question on that website would have a certain value of what the value of that answer would be and what the advertisers would be willing to pay to be around that answer. But that top, that tip top of questions would be so many, many, many multiples more valuable than the average question. And so it wasn't a scattered model. It wasn't a linear model. It was very much a power law distribution in terms of there was a subset of questions worth very, very, very high monetization rate. And so, you know, we had always tried a lot of different techniques to say, what can we do to curate more of those questions? What can we do to rank in more of those questions? Uh, how do we encourage more of those questions, et cetera? And you know, as I was starting capacity, one of the things I realized is that a lot of the questions that are either A, internal around trying to get your team to do its best work, or B, customer facing around a purchase, those are some of the most valuable and intense that people have. And so we didn't start capacity to, to be another answers.com. Answers.com is a great, great company, a great website. Uh, but we, what we really did is we said, look, there's a small sliver of questions that people have in the workplace, whether as a team member or as a consumer, that are very timely, very important, very expensive to answer under current methods by phone calls and tickets, and even live chats for that matter. And so I, I didn't spend a ton of time in AI at, at Answers itself. It did help me kind of lay the groundwork for there's this subset of questions that are really important to answer. And in many cases, you actually get over and over again, which means that if the technology scales the way, the way that it should, your marginal cost of servicing that, that answer the second or third or fifth or hundredth time should approach a zero. And that, that's one of the interesting and exciting things about the model we're building out. Okay. So what would be your advice to technology leaders out there right now that are trying to figure out how to leverage, whether it's AI or bots or automation or somewhere in this realm, um, this new industry, for lack of a better term, in their companies, in their, in their two to three year plan, in their, uh, in their digital agenda? In terms of digital transformation, my recommendation is first and foremost, get the car out of the garage, get started, get it going. You may have to make some turns. You may need to refill, refill some electricity in that car, but get the car out of the garage. I see too many organizations that are stuck, who can't get out of their own way, who are being left behind compared to the organizations that have adopted this technology. We had one client where our stakeholder left and went to go to a much more prominent position in another organization and basically said, when, when, as soon as he got there, the number one thing I'm going to do is part of my digital transformation play 
we have to bring capacity technology in because it is so crucial. Once you've implemented it, you, you just can't go back. Can't go back to calling people for questions as the first line of defense. Can't go back to um, having expensive call centers for people answering the same questions over and over again. And so I think too many CIOs, transformation officers end up with analysis paralysis trying to figure out, oh, what's the perfect place to start? How do, how do we get off the ground? Exploring the technology in and of itself is going to open up what the next best use case is. I like to say, I use a basketball analogy. Sometimes the shots that you have, that you have available, you can only see when you're on the floor playing the game. You can't see them on the stands. You can't see them watching. Only see those shots being open and available on the floor playing the game. And so my, my recommendation is don't aim for 100% field goal percentage because you're, you're probably taking too few shots if that's the case. I'm not saying you need to shoot a half-court shot to get going, but find that layup, move, to, move a, little bit, a little bit out, do a little jump, jump shot, and then work your way out to three-pointers and, and on, on back. And so are you, in that recommendation, are you saying like, you know, find a person on your team that's like, you know, an AI enthusiast or something like that, or like, you know, someone who's, you know, worked with bots before, or are you just saying like, you know, find the person on your team and just kind of deputize them and say like, hey, you know, do this, or how would you, how have you seen people uh, actually take take action? I think the first part is having someone take ownership of the implementation. And not just of the idea, not just of the concept, but of the implementation. Giving them the, the authority and enough autonomy to be able to run and get done what, what they need to get done. They have to go through too much bureaucracy. You end up with a failure to launch or you end up with expectation mismatches where everyone's trying to describe the elephant from different, different pieces, different parts of the elephant itself. We recommend have someone who is passionate about the technology. They don't necessarily have to have a ton of bot experience. Frankly, in some cases, you recommend they don't have a lot of bot experience because most bots are bad. Most bots historically are, are very narrow, narrow band. And so we like folks who are forward thinking, who can think through what it should be like, can recognize where the technology is at, and then help bridge the gap. Flipping the tables onto you, how do you buy and evaluate technology? So we have pretty straightforward process how we would evaluate technology. The first question is always build versus buy. And we try to not build anything that is not in a core competency of ours and not something that we think we could go deliver out to our, our clients. Uh, the second thing is, you know, we're a startup. So we weigh both first order and second order effects of both costs and value and total cost of ownership in terms of what kind of resources will we need to deploy this tech. And then another lens that we like to like to put on it is we really like technology that's easy to get up and running and easy to, to deploy. We built that into our own platform where we don't believe you should take six months to go roll out to a client. You should be able to get up and running in a very short period of time, weeks, and maybe you can have an incremental rollout for additional phases. That's okay. But we want you to be able to get value early on, have that value scale. And we, we take the exact same view when we're on the other side of the table buying technology ourselves. 
Okay, let's get into our lightning round. These questions are fast and easy. Just like the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience, you can go to salesforce.com slash platform to learn more. They're the best. Check them out. We love Salesforce Customer 360 platform, and they've been with us since the first episode of this show, 200-something episodes ago. Salesforce.com slash platform. Lightning round questions. David, are you ready? Go for it. Number one, do you have a hobby or habit that you picked up during shelter in place? Yes. I started walking five to 10 miles a day, often during Zooms. Found it to be a great way to get in shape and also uh, to keep my mental health in a good place. That is the one downside of the Zoom is that always the video meetings, I feel the same way. I'm like, I need more, I'm more sedentary now. I need more walking meetings. So that's great advice. Do you have any uh, TV show or, uh, or book or podcast that you've been binging recently? So let's see, we, my wife and I will go on runs. We just wrapped up the latest season of Homeland fantastic show. Uh, in terms of books, I've got a whole stack of books uh, that I've gone through recently. I just finished Dalio's uh, Principles, uh, Kendi's uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Right now I'm reading A Hero with a Thousand Faces. So I, I like to read books from different genres and different, uh, different areas. And uh, I always like to synthesize what, what, what takeaways I get out of a book. I keep them all in my notes, uh, Apple notes on my phone. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm constantly churning through books all the time. Do you have a hidden talent or passion? My passion is to create things in whatever aspect I'm in, whether it's a business, whether it's art, whether it's creating stuff with my kids. Um, I love, always love to, always love to make things. And I love to spend time with my, my wife and four kids. Uh, there it's been one of the best parts of the shelter in place has been I haven't had to do much travel. I haven't really done any travel since we started. And so uh, it's nice to nice to be home with them, nice to eat lunch with them, hear about the days. I end up doing a little more t- home tech support than I, I, <laughs> I normally do. But beyond that, it's been, it's been good to be home. What is your best advice for a first-time CEO? I, my advice would be to get to know the culture recognize what will be easier parts of the culture to move, what will be harder parts of the culture to move and recognize that culture is the collective, uh, collective experiences of people and understand how that culture got to be the way that it is. If you want to be able to make positive change there. Say if I was talking to a first time startup CEO, uh, I would zoom in on the difference between uncertainty and risk on how when you start a business, you don't know if anyone will buy your product, if you can build your product, if you can sell your product, if you can hire your team, if you can raise the funds to support your product, if your customers will renew, all this uncertainty out there. And I, I would say that, that in the early stages of a company, all you're trying to do is convert uncertainty into risk. You think of risk as, yeah, you can go play, uh, play blackjack and protect us hold them doesn't mean you're guaranteed to win any hand, but you can look at the hand you have and you can look at what's going on around the table 
and you can come up with a probabilistic outcome on what, what might happen. And so it doesn't mean you're going to win every hand, but you're early on, you're trying to convert uncertainty into risk. And then over time, I think as an organization grows up, I think you're going the other way where you're, you're converting risk into certainty. And that, those would be the three stages I would view a, view a company at. And companies end up recycling through those stages as new technology changes occur. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? People often ask about, you know, what do you highly value? What do you, what's important? People rarely ask what's overrated. And, and I found in my experience that building a startup, a technology startup, obviously you, you want to work with intelligent people. You want to work with people who've got great intellectual horsepower. But I found that at, as someone gets higher and higher on the IQ scale, the diminishing marginal utility for those extra IQ points vis-a-vis a startup, where a lot of other factors end up being much more indicative of success. Your work ethic, your drive, your ability to listen, not necessarily the ability to know all the answers, but the ability to connect dots across different places, your ability to know who to work with to get to the right answer. And so, yeah, I would say my experience, a lot of people overweight raw intelligence on the, on the upper end, and then un, at least with respect to a startup, and then underweight how important these other factors end up being and uh, leading to the success of the organization. Well, that's it. That's all we got for today. David, thanks so much for joining the show. We really appreciate it. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? Um, just last thing I'd say, uh, if anyone's interested in learning more, just check us out at capacity.com and we look forward to helping your team do its best work. Awesome. Thanks again. Appreciate it. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.